Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Um, today, we have the pleasure to talk to Dr. Anastasia Mihalidou, a senior hospital scientist at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, Australia. Dr. Mihalidou engages in both biomedical and clinical research as head of the Cardiovascular and Hormonal Research Laboratory at the Colling Institute and is an honorary associate professor at Macquarie University. Anastasia has an extensive contribution to service, and I'd like to highlight just a few that speak of the breadth of her contributions and also passion. Many would know Anastasia for her work on social media. She is a fantastic communicator and a social media superstar with more than 15,000 followers on Twitter. This was recognized by the International Society of Hypertension with her appointment as the vice chair of the communications committee. Due to her expertise running the diagnostic ambulatory blood pressure monitoring clinical service, she is also a member of the advisory board of the Stride BP to standardize blood pressure measurement. She was also part of the High Blood Pressure Research Council of Australia Committee, which led to the successful application to the Medical Services Advisory Committee for Medicare Reimbursement for Ambulatory Blood Pressure Monitoring, which has just been listed in uh, this year. And this is a huge victory for all Australians. Many uh, other, uh, amongst many other service roles, I would also like to highlight that Anastasia is a member of the important Lancet Commission on Cardiovascular Disease in Women, which is devising new strategies to tackle inequalities to reduce the burden of cardiovascular disease in women. It is a, a pleasure and also an honor to have Anastasia with us today. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Thank you, Francine, and thank you, Guta, for having me. I'm really honoured that you have a famous uh, track record with these pod uh, ish podcasts. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Um, and Anastasia, we always get started asking you to share with us your story and how did you end up getting involved with research as well as hypertension? Um, do you know those squiggly lines that show your career path? And, and, and I'm not quite on the upstroke of, of success, to be honest, but that's my career path. So uh, to be honest, I was thinking about it, and I always laugh when I think about it because I, I, I started a passion in cardiovascular, um, uh, not so much disease, but uh, uh, physiology by my science degree, well before any research degree. And it was basically we had, I, I was doing, I majored in pharmacology and biochemistry, but I, I, the careers advisor at that time said, oh, you know, there aren't many positions in biochemistry, tenured positions are very hard to come by and you'll end up in a lab, probably pipetting urine or whatever. And so I didn't want to do that. Uh, I wanted to try and I liked pharmacology and we had cardiovascular pharmacology and we had actually in those days we had dogs from the pound before they were destroyed before you could uh, and um, we were looking at cardiovascular responses actual responses to medication what have you and I loved it that so much that I actually 
to put, put, I wasn't being a geek, but my passion for the responses and the reaction to the, you know, the heart rate and everything, because we could see it um, by intra-arterial recording and contractility. I prepared for the second session so I could answer the questions. And um, my, my supervisor was a, a master's student of my to be PhD supervisor. And I hadn't really thought about a, a career in, in research, but because my family weren't uh, uh, scholastic, uh, not, not to say that they didn't have uh, education in their families, but they didn't know of research, they didn't know of university because they, they didn't have that option or that opportunity. And so I really didn't know what to do at that stage. I didn't have a career path focus like many of you have these days of what you're going to do in the next five years. I still don't know what I'm going to do in the next five years, to be honest. Um, but um, the master's student obviously discussed it with my then-to-be PhD supervisor, and they approached me to do honours with them. And I didn't realise it was an honour. I thought, oh, this is great. I'll get to do what I love. And I started to do the honours. However, the honours project was creating a volume overload model of heart failure. Now, one year, not even one year, you know what an honours year is, to create a model, a recovery model, oh, well, sorry, it was an anaesthetic model, but to learn surgical skills, boy, I had no idea of finishing in time. So what happened was uh, we had a, a, a medical student who was also doing the, uh, the pressure overload. He got preference because his medical degree was very tight. My volume overload trials were delayed until September, October. So you can imagine the panic around the time where the thesis. So my supervisor convinced me to do a master's of, for obvious reasons at that time, but I didn't realize I trusted her. Um, I had a lot of faith and, and in that coming from Greek background, a lot of respect uh, that, you know, they were guiding us. I should have known it wouldn't work. The chances of a, an ambitious model like that wouldn't. So um, I converted to a master's and then because of the volume, because it was recovery, by that stage, it was recovery uh, um, surgery. So I learned surgical skills. I learned echo to interpret echo, ECG. I basically learned what a vet or doctor would do in terms of cardiovascular. So my career path was already starting in cardiovascular. Little did I know that this was a research and that was my passion. And so I, I managed to, the volume of work was enough for a PhD. So I was fortunate to convert and the university accepted uh -huh. to a PhD. And then I was comfortable being a, a tutor while, while doing my PhD. And the position uh, in a, the research, it was a hypertension unit at Royal North Shore came about, but it was clinical trials, not basic science or um, biomedical research, full clinical. And we're talking intra-arterial recording. So it meant that um, we would, uh, the uh, cardiologist in charge of the unit would cannulate the these were businessmen that would come in. Uh, they, he would cannulate them with an arterial uh, line. It would be connected to a chamber. And my role was, apart from, you know, analyzing the data and collating and, uh, and running the uh, stress tests, Valsava maneuver and all of those tests, was to prepare the chamber. Now, we're biomedical scientists. We're not uh, uh, clinical at that stage. You know, I was 25. Um, I was trying to write my PhD and it was quite stressful because I'd have to get in at 6 a.m. 
So we're talking about a standard research assistant job, which starts at, supposed to start at nine or eight and finish at four. No, 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 no. Starting at six, finishing at six, because I had to get in earlier to prepare the chambers, uh, debubble the chambers, because as we know, they could end up with a pulmonary embolism, and then wait until the businessmen finished their work and could come in to prepare mm -hmm. the chambers. So that was 12 hour days um, in the midst of trying to write up a PhD. So within the three months of my first job, I gave resignation. <laughs> but he didn't want to let me go. So he was very good. And he gave me one day off a week to write it. So I would have to go into uni and have to write and think about my biomedical research on top of learning my clinical. And but what it did do is that hypertension unit taught me, and I must say, it's the foundations of the, the best grounding in terms of measurement. Because we were trying to develop the equivalent of a Finapress device, um, we were developing it ourselves because there was a PhD medical student that was developed. We learned how the machines worked. We interrogated it. We learned how to measure blood pressure. So. Although I came from a biomedical background, I had very strong clinical training in blood pressure measurement. Uh, I must say I'm grateful for that because the person who was in charge at that time was in the lab with me side by side. He would say to me um, in front of patients, because we would have patients that uh, volunteered for the studies, he would say, in front of the patients, it's uh, uh, it, it's uh, doctor doctor so-and-so, but, you know, when we're alone, it's, you know, first names. And I knew I was in trouble whenever he called me by my surname and referred to me as doctor. Not too often, but there were some times where it was. So the thing is that they gave me the grounding and my passion for hypertension. I realised that there was so much that we we needed to do both from a mechanism point of view and a uh, and a treatment and particularly measurement. I'm very passionate about accurate measurement, as you all know. I I was passionate well before Sprint made it fashionable to to look at treat. I say fashionable because I I developed um, I I did an, a survey of our, our hospital about how it's measured and. Like everywhere, it wasn't my first time. It's not measured properly. And I tried to convince colleagues and peers and what have you that we needed to do something, but no one was interested. A bit like looking at uh, gender differences or sex differences in cardiovascular disease. I did that well before um, it, it was a, a, a big issue. Uh, but as we know, if it's not accepted by our peers, then it's very hard to convince them. And particularly, and I'll have to say, and I'll get, I'll probably get a lot of people offended, but in the clinical sphere, getting a biomedical scientist to, to, to suggest that, you know, blood pressure isn't measured accurately is not an easy feat and it's not well accepted. But anyway, um, to cut a long story short, um, I was able to, uh, to be supported by a previous university and my colleagues. We developed an e-learning module. The medical uh, curriculum didn't accept it, but the nursing curriculum accepted it and it was part of the nursing curriculum. That set the stage for making me realize that my passion was really hypertension, particularly the clinical, but I still love the biomedical. At the same time, the unit closed 
and I ever had to train into developing biochemistry and models of heart failure, which I had not really done anything about or lose position. So I was fortunate. I looked at going overseas, but at that time, my family, my father was ill with um, a heart heart attack and he required a cabbage. So I really couldn't go. So I stayed in the same position, but I changed uh, focus. I, I retrained in biophysics, cellular electrophysiology. Now, my passion is like all of us, uh, physiology, pharmacology, cardiovascular. Cellular electrophysiology is still cardiovascular, but it involves a tremendous wealth of mathematics, biophysics. So I can't say that I'm a master of it these days, but I certainly had to learn fast. I was grateful that the person in charge of the lab gave me that opportunity because it allowed me to sustain my current position in running the ambulatory monitoring. At the same time, I kept running it, even though the physician who was in charge um, didn't, uh, didn't continue it. And then we had a new physician take over, so we ran it together. And it was really interesting because one day she said to me, you know, you probably can interpret these studies better than I can. <laughs> and so we did a test. Uh, we had 10 studies and I interpreted them separately to hers and they were spot on identical. So that gave me a lot of enthusiasm that my knowledge is not just from um, learnt or, you know, didactic or, or for research sake. It's a passion. And I, and I think, as you both know and everybody knows, Unless you find what you're passionate about, you really don't excel. And and we, it's it's. I know it's it's common practice to say that, but it's the reality. You know, over the years, I've found that I love biomedical research, but it's getting in Australia, as Francine knows, it's getting really difficult to compete, and the techniques are getting much more advanced. I love clinical work, but as a biomedical scientist it's very hard to run trials. Congratulations, machine, uh, Francine, for running it. But for me, I've had a lot of opposition. And so I'm, I'm always told that I fall between the cracks. Now, it's supposed to be a compliment, but it isn't. It's, it's, I don't get accepted by the biomedical scientists because I don't want to practice 100% biomedical. I don't get accepted by the clinical scientists, although I'm very fortunate because of Twitter, um, I've met some really lovely people that uh, that do support me. Um, and so I'm caught between the two because I love both, but I, I, I really am not, I don't fit in either. And, um, and it's, it's frustrating because I want to contribute and I'm, uh, but I'm not allowed to, if that makes any sense. And so I'm fortunate that because of the biophysical training, I was able to set up my own lab, the, the cardiovascular and hormone research. And it's funny because my project, PhD project, was in heart failure. And the initial training that I had in biophysics was in looking at aldosterone's action in the heart. It hadn't been done before. And I laughed because that took me full circle to what my training was. And I had all the skills. But then it was exciting because... No one had looked at the heart for aldosterone. It was always the, the, the kidneys and, and other tissues, but not the heart. And so whatever we were finding was really exciting, particularly with patch clamping, because patch clamping is such a, a great 
technique in terms of looking at intracellular because you're not just mesh, meshing up the, the cells, you're actually keeping them intact. The interesting thing was that I also learned intracellular sodium recording and I was the only one in the lab that had perfected it. So I get, got to, to assist the others in terms of their projects. But patch clamping, as most people know, is um, very labor intensive. So we would start at 8 a.m. and finish at 1 a.m. because we had to wait until the heart cells, fresh heart cells, decided to respond. And so they didn't respond until after 8 p.m. <laughs> so once they responded after 8 p.m., you needed to stay around because you couldn't just get one experiment. You would, if a good night was three or four experiments, a bad night was no experiment. And I used to go home and I would say, I'd, my experiments didn't work. And so my, my mother now says, my experiment didn't work when she has a, a mishap with cooking. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, at least I trained my family in terms of research of what it means. And so I, I managed to get some really great data in terms of aldosterone's action in the heart. I was very happy and also with cortisol. So that allowed me to continue my research in my own lab. And at the same time, uh, as you pointed out, my passion for the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring was recognized. And I'm fortunate that I had good collaborators who wanted to look at ambulatory in their research. So I continued that. And it brings me to today where I'm able to contribute to both. I'm able to contribute to sex differences, which I wanted to do from the beginning, but couldn't. And I'm very grateful to be here today, to be able to tell my story, because not many people know my story. So thank you. Now, this is wonderful. Thank you for sharing it with us. And uh, Anastasia, as uh, Francine pointed out, like you're very active, not only like in social media, but also like in different societies and different communities. And uh, for like a early career researcher, like this is a little overwhelming, right? Because they don't know like uh, how uh, these activities can contribute to their development. So how do you think that your participation in this professional societies, communities and everything helped you to uh, be able to move forward and get people accepting you or accepting your work and how basically how that contributes to your growth. Yeah, so the, the, the committee work and different groups is part of uh, community engagement. When we, we think of community, a lot of people think the, the, the general community, but I always put it down as, uh, as community engagement because you are my commu community, my peers are my community. And the different roles help you develop as a person and as a critical thinker because you learn skills, whether it's, you know, how to run a meeting, which is really a skill in itself, or how not to run a meeting, as we all know, can happen. And that actually opens up your eyes because if you're, if you're just in the lab all day or if you're in the clinic all day, you learn different skills. But being interacting with different people, you get to meet different people, but also you get to learn about their, their backgrounds and it, it enriches you as a person because every interaction we have with people, uh, we learn something from them. I used to say to, and I say it now to my students and my, the day we, we stop learning is the day we die. So every interaction we have, we learn. Um, 
the you have to be select with your time and that's something that I haven't perfected uh, although I am getting better and to say no um, it comes I blame my mother because she always used to say take up the opportunities as they arise and I think that's really I, I was flattered that I was invited to join and I think even if you're not invited you put your hand up I, I didn't learn that way because I was shy, believe it or not. I was very shy uh, um, growing up. Uh, uh, and I know everybody laughs now, but I've become like my mother, very vocal and, and very boisterous. But the thing is, that's happened because of the committees, because I found a voice. Um, you, you might, by sitting in these committees, you might give an opinion, and that opinion, it's like social media, is is... Uh, picked up by someone because it's something that they want to hear and the conversation starts. Doing that means that you are then uh, recognised as having an opinion. It, it has to be obviously with respect because starting out as an early career, you can't be contentious. However, sometimes being contentious can be an advantageous and that's where the bravery comes in. As long as you're respectful, having a difference of opinion can be a healthy thing. And that's what helped me. It was not just agreeing all the time. And I have a tendency to nod my head a lot, you know, in meetings. And people like that because they see that there's an acknowledgement. But also, if something wasn't right, I'd speak up. And as my mother would say to me, why is it always you? Anastasia, why not someone else? And I said, I don't know, but I can't just let that go. You know, I was like all of us when we're young. I'm not so, uh, you're still young, but we would be a lot more uh, um, passionate about something that had to be changed. These days, I let it ride, you know, it doesn't matter. So it happens. But when you're in your early 20s, 30s, maybe even 40s, um, you're much more passionate uh, that, that, about things and how. So you can have a difference of opinion. It actually shows that you've got courage and you've got, it may not a, a, a apply to everybody. Some may get offended, but there will be others that will recognise you. And that's where the invitations start. That's where the discussion starts. And that's where you start building your reputation. So committees are good. A relative, it has to be in agreement with your sponsor, mentor, supervisor, whoever it is. Um, I was fortunate. They didn't really regulate what I said yes. In fact, um, they really didn't mind as long as the work was done. So I, I tend to be a workaholic, you know. Um, it was, I wanted to do the committees because it was great. I managed to get to deputy chair of of animal and human ethics. Uh, uh, so I learned a lot there. Um, one might say, why so much, you know, work? But looking at, uh, you know, allowing the projects to proceed because we had uh, the science input was important because a lot of the questions weren't relevant. The committees for the, I was on the, the ISH mentorship committee originally invited and, and uh, that was really nice. And it actually helped me. I, I got to meet Eric Lee, who was my ment allocated mentee and now is a collaborator, and it's wonderful seeing him develop, you know, uh, and I would never have connected with him if it had been traditional. And that's the beauty of Twitter. Everybody used to criticise me uh, here in Australia, <laughs> 
about being on Twitter. They thought that I was wasting my time, you know, and, and, and it was all just for fun. Uh, but it wasn't. It was about learning. And yes, I have a lot of fun. I post a lot of, not lately, because I'm not that happy at the moment, but um, with family issues, but um, uh, I post a lot of dogs. But it's about relationship. I was talking to someone uh, at the recent conference. You have to set up a relationship is my philosophy. Um, it's not just about posting uh, me, me, me. I did this and I'm invited to here, as a lot of people do and nothing else. It's not about the follows. The followers don't mean anything. You know, I got most followers when I was hardly on Twitter. <laughs> so work that one out. <laughs> so it's not the followers. It's the quality of the relationships and and. But the discussion, and if you have the discussion, then the opportunities come. I remember being invited to the European Society of Cardiology for presentations, and I wasn't even a member at that time. Obviously, I joined immediately, but that was as a result of my discussions on Twitter. So I recommend to early career researchers to be involved in committees. Um, it doesn't have to be strategic. We learn so much from people who are outside our field. I, I've, I, I was told that when I was, uh, was uh, training, and I still feel, believe it today. Talking to people from different backgrounds brings different fresh eyes, perspective. It also brings different uh, uh, life experiences, and that's really important for our growth. We go through so many challenges. I've had some shocking ones, not just family health, but career-wise. And uh, I remember a, a friend who was also a psychologist said to me once, um, do you think you would react to that situation the same way? And I said, no. And he said, well, then that's taught you and made you stronger. And I hadn't thought about it that way because I was still hurting. Uh, it was a major problem. And, and I'm really grateful he did because it makes me now think differently about the bad experiences we have. I don't wish it on anyone, but the fact that we survive through them means that we learn from them and we don't treat other people that way. And we also don't um, react the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that, that's Sorry, I'm a bit well, more long-winded. <laughs> now that's a wealth of information for uh, our um, trainees, so thank you. And uh, Anastasia, something we, we are all passionate about in this call uh, is mentoring, and you mentioned already one of your mentees. Um, can you define uh, your mentorship experience in one word and tell us why? <laughs> I, my mentorship experience or my experience with mentors, <laughs> because they were very minimal ones. Um, uh, I, I, uh, my my super PhD supervisor had a son with asthma, so I hardly saw her. She had to be off. So I learned from the master's student. My own mentorship is to support, as you know, uh, but also to let them contribute. And, and one thing I say to, uh, to students and to, to mentees, and they find it odd, is that we are all learning and I want them to bring their ideas to the table. Uh, having four you know, people think about an, an idea brings fresh ideas rather than me, excuse me, dictating or, or, or um, guiding the research. And they look at me oddly saying, well, 
you're in charge here. <laughs> you're supposed to be giving us it. I said, no, uh, I, I'm here to, to learn as long and I really want your ideas because I've been looking at this for a very long time and uh, you come in fresh and uh, any new idea. And, and some of them react greatly with that and gra grab the enthusiasm. Others not sure about it and, and need more guidance. But the bottom line is that you have to give people my philosophy, because I didn't get the best mentorship when I needed it the most, uh, it is support. It's really vital, it, not, not only in the research, but in introductions to, to peers, to seniors, to whatever. It's very daunting, as, as we all know, to, to present to uh, the, the uh, leaders in the field and what I do is I introduce, when we go to conferences, when we go to meetings, I always introduce uh, whoever it is with me and I promote them. Because my philosophy is um, that there's room for all of us to shine. We don't have to block someone else. We don't have to get in front of someone else to get the position in front. We don't have to be the senior. I don't call my lab um, uh, uh, Mahaladu Lab. I call it the Cardiovascular and the Hormonal Research Lab. The reason I do that is because it's not uh, it's, it's not just my lab. Where every person that comes into it brings their skills, brings their qualities. Some might be good, some might not be so productive. But the bottom line is the the research develops because we all look at it differently and and I see that now with my students my med students I've got four MD students and they're all I'm so happy that they've got my enthusiasm and passion but they bring their ideas and and I think that's what mentoring should be about it's supposed to be encouraging mentees to to bring their ideas not be scared about it absolutely yeah and and that's perfect. So Anastasia, I just wanted to uh, follow up when you mentioned that uh, about your experience with mentors. So when you look back to your career and to now, like uh, you have a mentor, like, or did you have like a, a mentor relationship? And um, and how do you, like, how do you think you realize that you need a mentor? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um... I didn't, the reason I'm still struggling and I've only just been appointed associate professor is because I didn't have a real mentor. I had mentors along the way, but not supportive mentors. Um, one mentor in particular would take my work and present it at conferences and, and, and I wasn't, he, he, he would acknowledge me and that was his way of saying, well, it's not my research, I'm acknowledging you. But unfortunately, that's not the same. And many people thought I was his trainee rather than his collaborator, to be honest. So I didn't really have a proper mentor. I didn't have a proper, uh, I had probably what we call now sponsors. And I only found out the term sponsors from Twitter. I didn't knew what a sponsor was. So I didn't really have a proper mentor. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm still struggling. You know, I, I've me mentored mentees who are associate professors well before I was. And yes, it's a title, but it indicates that you can see that I've I've done it the, the slow way and, and the struggled way uh, and my own way. And I think, 
I wish I realized I didn't have a mentor once I established, I didn't have the proper mentors once I established my own lab, not because I didn't know how to, to run my lab, because I had very good people training from people, leaders in the field of how to run a lab. It was more about the fact that I missed the guidance that a mentor would give you. I miss the, the introductions. I would go up to people and introduce myself. And that was daunting because some didn't want to talk to me, as we know, sometimes people don't want it unless you're in a group. Or um, I, I would, you know, uh, not approach them because I was scared, you know, that they won't, uh, that, that they won't acknowledge me. So I struggled, to be honest. I really struggled because I didn't have the proper mentorship. And I, that's probably why I, a bit of overkill with my own mentees in, in being super supportive because I, I missed that. Uh, I wish I had it because I think I probably would have been a little bit more content now in terms of my biomedical research. It's very hard to continue biomedical research, any research, uh, but particularly biomedical, as you know, to gain grants, to gain recognition, to get um, all of that sorted out while running a clinical ser diagnostic service at the same time. And Anastas, if you don't mind, uh, it seems like I expand a little bit. So you, you, you told us that, um, you feel that your career was was a little slower compared to like to others that your peers or something. And I think like a lot of people that listen to us, they feel the same way. And uh, and I think it's, uh, it's important to ask like, how did you deal with that feeling? Like, how did you deal with like, now it's so, uh, not famous, but people like to bring the imposter syndrome up and say like, uh, you know, those voices telling you like, oh, you're not good enough. Like, look, if you like compare yourself to all those people, how did you, like, I don't know if you had that uh, going through. And if you did, like, you don't need to say yes or no, unless you feel comfortable with, but how do you, like, what would be your advice for people to deal with those feelings? We, we all, I'm happy to say, we all go through imposter syndrome. We all doubt. When we, we're, we're blocked by a grant or we get our paper rejected or even our colleagues not taking notice of what we have to contribute. You know, uh, uh, it can be at a conference. You can give a, an opinion and no one says anything and then they'll take the idea and they'll run with it, but they won't acknowledge you. All of those things happen to us you, you know it the, the it, it's real it's not just because you know one person um you get upset but you get over it and you move on you you, you don't focus on the negative you move ahead and, and the important thing is to have have support to, to whether it's it's um, a family member whether it's a friend whether it's a colleague to, to discuss it um not so much uh exactly the intricacies, but in terms of the positives you're contributing. And look at the positives that are pre being presented to you rather than focusing on why you didn't get ahead. So rather than something you missed, we tend to, we, uh, you know, we hear this a lot in terms of different motivation talks and what have you, but it's the reality. And, and I always used to say it's opportunities. They're not opportunities. They're actually recognition of our worth. You might have a rejection, but about three or four weeks later, you will get an invitation to something or you will get someone saying that's a great job, you know, whatever. As small as they are, focus on the positive. Think about it and, and 
And I, if I get a thank you from a patient, I'm over the moon. Now, most people wouldn't care, you know, that's, they get the thank yous. But to me, it's a big thing because people don't get asked to give an opinion. They give it because they're satisfied. And if I've made someone by interacting, giving them advice about their blood pressure, about their health, if I made them feel better and if I made them comply with, with getting their health checked, to me, that's a, a real joy because it means one less person is going to have cardiovascular disease complications because they're going to start the network discussing it. So focus on positives as small as they are. Don't just focus on the big items. That's what my mother taught me. One thing happened when one, we say in Greek, when one door closes, another one opens. I don't know if it's in English, but in Greek, we say when one door closes, another door opens. We don't see it. And, and I always say, oh, wonderful opportunity. But it's not opportunity. It's recognition. And, and I'm grateful that there have been opportunities which have made the bad times feel bad you know, insignificant. And we have the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, not only that, I can see even in the language that you use that you say grateful many times. And I think that that's actually really beautiful because it is an acknowledgement of uh, how, uh, how you make uh, exactly what you're saying, that uh, you appreciate the opportunities and you take them on, and um, yeah, and, and I think that that's really important. We do um, in our lab meetings. The first thing that we do is everybody go, we go around the table. Everybody says what they're grateful for, mm -hmm. and that's how we start our lab meetings. Yeah. And so, um, Anastasia, yeah, what is uh, your mentoring style, and uh, can you give us any examples of ways that you have helped your mentees? Ah, oh, I don't know that I can tell you my mentoring style, <laughs> to be honest. It's about support. It's about guidance. But it's also about if something's going wrong. And I've been criticised, as we know, universities don't like you to point out problems if, if there are problems with students. But for me, it's about uh, identifying if there is a problem, then it has to be resolved. Um, it, examples are, uh, I will, uh, if, I'm, uh, if, if there is an invitation for a, a paper, I will uh, in, ask the mentee to be involved and I will either put them first author and, and me a senior rather than me a first author, or I will introduce them like I have with my mentees uh, to working groups, international working groups. So if I'm involved in a working group and they want new members, I will nominate um, uh, mentees. I will even nominate um, colleagues for um, awards. Uh, the idea is to promote them, to get them discussing and uh, wherever possible, introduce them to other people so that they can then start the conversation without me there. So that's my style. It's about making the mentee feel comfortable enough and not daunted by, by other their not so much their peers, but their, their, their um, co collaborators as well as leaders in the field. It's quite daunting for, for, for mentees and students to go up and, and start a conversation by doing it in a, a in a sociable manner or at a conference or even at a meeting, I've introduced them um, 
it makes it a little bit easier and I find the mentees appreciate and can initiate conversations on their own. So I don't know that I can tell you much more than that. I'm sorry. But, uh, but in terms for um, mentees to take advantage of that scenario, what traits do you think they should have for them to really take advantage of relationships? So what I used them? to do, yeah, what advice I used to do is, um, when I was going through, I didn't get any advice and I would read like we all do the papers and everything. So whenever there was someone, a leader in the field, I would go up to them and I'd say, I really enjoyed that paper. Um, how did you do this, this and this? And that person would be feel so flattered that I knew their work that it would change the, the relationship. So they would then smile or say hello to me during the meeting. And that made it easier for me then to approach them. So it's about knowing your, your work and knowing the work of your, your peers and, and leaders if you are, want to stay in research, you are going to need to know that. You can't just expect people to come to you. You have to go to them. And, and the best way to do it is to know their work and maybe ask a question about it. That's how I used to do it. That's good advice. Um, and um, what traits do you think a good mentee has? Oh. <laughs> um, Enthusiasm uh, for for learning um, uh, uh, um, ha has to be able to drink coffee. <laughs> uh, I had a PhD student who who didn't drink coffee. By the end of it, she was drinking coffee. <laughs> so um, a good sense of humor because um, life is very dull. So you need to make fun every so often to get through the dark times uh, when things aren't working um, and um, a passion to learn but also to to contribute I think we all we have had students who want to just sit down and do literature reviews and no by no no don't go into the lab and I was criticized for being a bad supervisor for trying to ask the student to go into the lab but it was a, a biomedical honors project so unfortunately so I, I just think anything that we would expect our friends to have we would expect our students I mean I know our students are not our friends but if you treat people the same as you want to be treated then you're more likely to get the best out of people. Yeah. Okay. And Anastasia, a lot of people that listen to us, like they are in that phase of their careers that they need to switch lab or uh, go to a different place and start like a postdoc, a new postdoc, a new position, a new something. So, so what's your advice and how to identify a good environment that they can go in and flourish? So you're saying how to identify the right environment to go to? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the best thing is to talk to the people, but also to look at, at the research that's being produced and the way that people interact at, at meetings and, at, and, and amongst people. So you really need to look at how that leader and that team work. You won't find it if you just go visiting because everybody's on best behavior. It's a bit like an inspection of the lab. Everybody disappears and it's only the person in charge who's there for the inspection. Um, everybody's on best behavior. The best thing is, um, uh, uh, yeah, the best thing is, the best thing is to, to um, uh, look at how they interact 
with other people uh, at meetings uh, and also uh, to uh, look at their productivity because ultimately if you want to run your own lab you want to be in a lab where there, there is not a lot, it doesn't necessarily have to have a lot of people, it just has to be have productive team and teamwork. It's the same with sailing, you know, a great team on a sailing boat doesn't shout at each other. It's only the, the, the uh, tactician that calls the shot and everybody responds and everybody knows their role. It's the same with a lab, you know, um, Everybody can, you can have a large team, but you can have factions and you can have, you know, anarchists and we've all had, you know, experiences in those labs. The best thing is to see how they interact, to see how people talk about each other, then that gives you an idea what type of lab. And you don't need to, to be a leader. Uh, you know, we, we've forced people to think that they have to set up their own lab and initiate their own re research. You can still initiate research within someone else's lab if that leader is is um, uh, acceptable. And, and that it should be that way. You know, it should be about initiating um, different styles of research within the same lab. And Anastasia, you mentioned that you're a shy person in the past which like I I didn't I didn't meet that shy person when I met you like you were you're very like, I, I think like my first time that I uh, was in the ECCR and the High Blood Pressure Council of Australia uh, joint section and uh, the ish that was in Beijing in China and you instantly came and talked to me and Francisco like the other postdoc in the in our lab and the conversation just just started naturally. So a lot of people would love to have that uh, skill because uh, in conferences or approaching to people, they feel very intimidated. So how did you change? I guess like, what's the secret from changing from shy to uh, outspoken? So, so the thing was that I, I, I was shy because I, I was brought up to, you know, the, in, in an environment, I, I have a loving family, but, as you know, um, there's a lot of racism and being in, from Greek background, I was bullied at school. So it was uh, uh, shyness. I was also shy because I, I was always of the opinion that I wasn't good enough. And I, I, I think where it changed was when I started to, and you've met me when I had my own lab, but you don't have to have your own lab. It's, it's as I said, I started to read about different, uh, you know, research and different people's research. And I, I don't know where the courage came from, but I decided to, to just go up and ask someone about their, their research, you know, because I really wanted to meet that person. I was very interested in their work to, and um, it was along the lines of my own and I wanted to get some ideas, but rather than just going up and saying, oh, what do you think I should do about this, this, and this? I decided to adopt the different approach and, and, and introduce myself first. And the best way of, I, for me, it was self-taught, was to read, I knew their research because it was in my field, to, to read their research thoroughly and to go and talk to them about their paper and then set up the relationship. So it's about having the courage just to do it um, on a one-on-one, -on -one, not in a big group. So approach the person uh, or, or a peer or, or a, 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 um, a head of a lab 
in a one-to-one. -one. I know it's not always possible, but there are opportunities, you know, just in the corridor or at a meeting, whatever, and, and just have a discussion about that work. That way, they start to interact with you and it builds your self-confidence that you know about the area. So you start to become a little bit more confident that you're not just the person who does the lab work. You are the person who does the lab work, but also contributes to the development of the project. And then you get um, uh, people asking your opinion, which really, really changes your perspective and makes you think, wow. <laughs> <laughs> they want to hear me <laughs> and, and that really what's changed it and 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 I suppose that's probably because of my blood pressure knowledge and and the ambulatory where people didn't know much about it and were asking but also because of my project with them biomedical in terms of the cortisol response and and people wanting to know so that gave me confidence that that I had something to contribute and that's where it changed my uh, my personality to dive in because as as we all know unless you take a chance and get rejected it won't happen so that's the bottom line you may get rejected they haven't all been positive uh, but we don't focus on the negative we just say well no not to go next to him next time <laughs> <laughs> I'll just focus over here. Next in line. <laughs> yeah, and they're not all receptive. You know, some are just don't want to interact with you because you're not at the same level. And unfortunately, we can't change those people. But there are other people who are at the same level as the ones who don't want to talk to you, but who do acknowledge you. And then you hear them saying, oh, by such and such, Anastasia's work showed, and you think, yes, that's what it is. And then you you become a little bit more boisterous. Perfect. And now like just uh, going into the diversity and inclusion uh, topic. So what do you think is the biggest uh, issue around diversity and inclusion uh, in research and how in your opinion can be changed? So the biggest challenge is that we focus on the sex differences. You know, we put them into male and female uh, with it, but there's so many other aspects. You know, there's there, transgender, there's um, different uh, uh, Hispanic, you know, different races, um, Aboriginal in our case, you know, Indigenous uh, races, what have you. Uh, the, the the problem is that that for such a long time, certain people have controlled granted funding, um, uh, presentations, and you see the same people present, and or you see a full panel, and they don't see the fact that there is no diversity. And when I say the diversity, I'm not just talking about females, I'm talking about you know different perspectives, because different races bring different knowledge to the table. Uh, and so when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we need to make sure we're not just talking about females at the table, which is what you know most people think we're trying to push. It's about the, the richness of bringing diff. So the biggest problem we have is changing the system. It's coming, but it's a lot of work and we have to persist. We can't get frustrated, even though we see a full male panel of you know uh, professors uh, and what have you we just have to allow and we have to balance it with not a, not only promoting um, uh, you know early career but balancing it 
the mid-career, I'm very passionate because I'm not at my peak. You know, I'm not a professor. I still consider myself mid-career because I haven't been able to progress. But I'm not classified as a mid-career because we go by classifications of a certain time period after PhD. It's rubbish, excuse my language, because the mid-career now lasts a lot longer before the, the senior career. And what we have a problem when we talk about diversity is we're not catering for the mid-career researchers because they're the ones that aren't no longer being supported by special grants, you know, in terms of like early career can get um, uh, specific funds, professors can get, it's not right, I don't know, and they say, but the mid-career have to run the lab or have to initiate research, but there's no available funding. They're, they're competing with professors, but they're not able to get the funding because the professors are, but they're also not able to get the, the, the little bits of funding which can be amalgamated to drive your research. It's not ideal, but in this day and age, when funding is tight, you need to grab from everywhere. So when we talk about diversity, we need to really start thinking about all players not only focusing on early career, not only focusing on bringing, you know, giving them experience, not, not only focusing on, you know, promotions to professorship, which all of us would like to, but thinking about what everybody's doing and the challenges they're facing, because we're losing a lot of mid-career people to research. Um, and, and so the problem is that that talent will never be recovered. I've got a lot of faith in, you know, uh, the researchers in, in current research, but these people are forced out because there's no funding. And, and we are not looking at that at all. Um, uh, it's being addressed in certain spheres, but in most cases, as you know, because of all the, the funding cuts, teaching positions are being cut those people are losing not only their research, um, but also their, their funding and looking at other alternatives. It's sad because if a person is good at what they do, the limiting factor in research is the funding. And we just don't have enough funds, at least in Australia. And they should have support. Because what you're saying like resonates with me because when I, now that I moved to Montreal, um, one- Congratulations. Uh, oh, thank you. But when I was in the process, one of the things that I heard, and uh, this is why I'm so excited talking to you, is uh, this person came to me, he's like, well, we need to think about it. We need to be very careful uh, considering whether you're moving or not, because uh, you only have two years for you to happen. And then I'm like, why? Like, why everybody has to follow in the same recipe? Like, why people cannot stop and think about my, like I made those choices because uh, they made sense, right? So why do I need to sacrifice the things? That and are that's what I want to start the discussion because it's something that, that that I've been talking to Dylan about, and it may be something we can discuss within Ish. Um, we don't have that uh, 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 advice for for mid career. We we when I was doing my my. Uh, my my career path I was told I have to go overseas and I said why you know why do I have to leave my family and, and go for, for and come back to a research 
career, which I don't know whether I will be able to. And they said, oh, but that's how you do it. You know, that's how you do it. And I didn't go. I did look at it. I did look at going overseas to America and uh, studying. But because of my, what happened with my father, I couldn't. And, and the, the bottom line is, this is when we say inclusion, we think about what we normally think about diversity inclusion. But inclusion also comes about, as you said, very good case. You have done this. You've chosen to do that. You should be okay to do it. There shouldn't be anyone who's criticizing or uh, or penalizing you for doing it. And there shouldn't be any age limit. You know, in our country, they're they saying because of our aging population, they're encouraging our, our older you know pensioners to go back to work because there's not enough workforce. There is no age limit. My mom, I had to stop my mother at 70. She loved being a, a cook in a nursing home, but she was more than a cook. She was more like a chef because she was juggling 50 people who could eat for themselves and, and 50 people who needed assistance. But she was in heaven. You know, she was doing what she loved. And, and now we find that as long as you're happy in what you're doing, as long as you're contributing, why do we have to use ageism? That's another issue of diversity and inclusion we we think we think we know what the terms mean but in my opinion if I may say it's all of these things ageism shouldn't be you know we shouldn't treat people who you know are in their older age and not at professor stage differently because they didn't reach it we shouldn't be stopping people like you who are, have got an opportunity to change countries and 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 research um, environment not to do it it's so rich for you to have that experience to to enjoy that at time why make it make it difficult yet the system is such that we can't change it and that's why if we start the conversation maybe we can make it a little bit more palatable for us to get through it yeah and exactly i agree with you i think like it's time to change the formula you understand that the formula is much more complex than what people think. Like we're not, we're not supposed to be putting uh, cookie cutters, as people say, right? Yeah, and you'll all feel it, you know, because I've been through it, and I'm sort of, I'm not at the retirement age, but I'm on the other side of it. But you're all coming through it at your career stage, at Francine's uh, and Dylan. You're all moving into that mid-career stage where you will realize that the conditions are quite different there. You know, you think you know it, but it isn't because you're not you're not given the opportunities in funding that you do as early career, and you don't get the 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 um, support uh, that professors do, you know, and it's not right, but unfortunately, we have to change the system because we're losing really good people, uh, yeah. not because they want to, uh, they, they don't want to do research, it's because they can't get funded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, Anastasia, like, do you have any advice for women in research? And we're asking this because of the leaking pipe theory, they're like, more and more like, uh, uh, women leave science for many different reasons. Uh, so now focusing and concentrating only on women, uh, do you have any advice for them? Um, yes, I do. <laughs> find sponsors. Uh, find sponsors. Not, uh, not only females, but males. Um, it, it's uh, and anyone else who, who will uh, will support you. You've got to find the the, the people that will support you to um, uh, obviously if you're in an environment where you can't change, 
you still have to find someone to support you outside of that field so that you can get some enjoyment in, you know, the opportunities that arise from it. Um, unfortunately, we can't all have the best position, you know, that we want to in, in any vocation. Sometimes we have to put through, go through some, some conditions in terms of, you know, just to, to, to persevere. Um, don't give up. <laughs> I know we've heard it all before. Easier said than done, but uh, we have such a strong network of support for each other, particularly with ISH and all of the other associations, um, that Twitter is a great opportunity not to voice your, your problem, but more to, to realise that life is pretty rich and our work takes up a, a significant amount of time of our life, but it's not our full life. And, and we need to balance it with friendships. We need to balance it with travel. Like, you know, you've moved to a different place. There are different opportunities, you know, things to experience there. All of these things are not small. They're really large because people who can't experience them you know, because of health really uh, 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 feel it badly. And, and I say that because I've seen both sides, you know. My family who's ill can't do the things that you and I take for granted, you know, just to go for a walk, sit at a cafe, um, you know, chat to a friend. Yes, that's minor for some people, but to someone who's had their health taken away, it isn't. Now, we need money to do that, obviously, so you need work. But it's a matter of balancing. So my, my advice is find support, but also keep going. Um, ex enjoy life and take make the most of the little things that are really large and take enjoyment, not just for the sake of it, but the, enjoy it. That brings more happiness because you, you tend to see different th things. If you're upset or, or you're in a, a toxic, you know, environment, that makes it hard to, to, to create. And unfortunately, we can't get out of a toxic environment and people do le le leave. However, we've all been in a toxic environment. And if you find someone who's supportive and you can chat to them and you can get support or, or com confidence from them, I think that's the best way to do it. Anastasia, just now going, because I really want to ask this question to you because your uh, work on the Lancet Commission for uh, uh, like the study of cardiovascular disease in women. So the lack of studies, not only women, but also now the uh, like racial differences and everything. Why do you think that happened? It's just because it was a case of was easier to doing white men? Well, or do you think there's something much bigger for the, than for that? The many reasons. One was easier to do men than women because of the stress cycle. We all did it, and I put my hand up. You know, I, 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 I'm guilty as well in the past. Not because that's because that's what I used to hear on my time, my PhD. Like my first like project was like sex differences, and my supervisor's like, "We need to fix this because everybody keeps saying that it's is the menstrual uh, cycle that is the problem." But like, yeah, so I'm yeah, yeah. what else. So one was the fact that, you know, the Easter cycle and the complication. Two was uh, the other fact that, so that's the biomedical, the mechanisms we don't know. Two, it was the fact that women have different symptoms. And so 
One was that because they didn't present with the classic, you know, crushing chest pain, it was always fobbed off. I, I remember working uh, on a project, a clinical project uh, called Syndrome X. We used to call it atypical chest pain. And it was thought to be either gastrointestinal or psychological. And women were always thought to think that not, not to have real pain because the arteries didn't respond the same way. The coronary circulation, when they took images, didn't have the, the constriction that males did. We didn't know at that time uh, or no one really bothered to look that there would be differences, you know, in the, the reaction. So the problem was that because women didn't have the same symptoms, they were often regarded as being hypochondriac or or whatever. The other factor is the women themselves, and I've been guilty of doing that as well when with my fam, is we're too busy looking after everybody else, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's community, or whether it's work that we don't take care of ourselves and we don't pick up the signs. So, you know, if we're feeling tired, we think that that's because of overwork, but it could be because there's something happening. Now, I'm not saying we should be hypochondriac, but the, the problem is that, that if we don't take regular checks of our own health, everybody has, then we're not likely to progress. And so, it sort of propagated the whole issue. And unfortunately, why less women were included, I don't know. It's a shame because that's something I picked up really early as well in terms of the proportion. And that is really sad because it means that we don't know what the responses were in women and we're being guided. And now what we're seeing is the side effect profile is greater, you know, for women because it might be a higher dose or the metabolism is a different we know the metabolism is different in women. So the reason the Lancet Commission was set up is not because there isn't enough work being done in this area. It's immense work. It was just that the Lancet thought, it is just sad that considering so much focus that, you know, with GoRed, with our Heart Foundation here, with your, you know, in Canada, all of this focus around the world in terms of women's health, uh, heart health, we're still seeing younger women die early, you know, and, and having complications. Why is it happening? And so they put the commission, like they do with all commissions, they put the, the commission together to bring a focus. And it has. I think it's worked really well because it's brought a focus. And we're all now saying enough is enough. We want to change it. We want, we want to stop saying women aren't included. We want to stop saying race, racial differences are not important. We want to stop saying um, social determinants of health, really important, you know. We're not just talking about women. It's the fact that people who, and we saw it with COVID, people who are living in, in less fortunate conditions don't get the same level of treatment. You know, they don't get treated. And so we have a real problem in that we've focused on a certain group of people, and we know, think we know cardiovascular disease. And it's really interesting, we've come full circle, because I usually used to say to my, my, my students that we need to, to redefine physiology to understand pathophysiology, because what we thought we understood of physiology is not and we're much more informed now because of the techniques that allow us to see. So what we, we defined as pathophysiology in the past is no longer relevant. And now, as you see with the, the, the different findings, women are not the same as men. 
they're not smaller versions and they're not, uh, they have different, we, we still don't know the mechanisms and that's where there's a key focus for biomedical research to find out the mechanism. But there's also an important clinical research to be done, looking at even proportions where you can, obviously, because the disease incidence may not be the same. Uh, and also how we tackle social determinants of health. That's a government problem. You know, we've got to make equal, uh, allow uh, the same sort of uh, access to health for everybody. And we don't have that in any country, I should say. Yeah. Exactly. So you mentioned the effects of COVID, uh, well, in health, but now let's uh, focus a little bit on the effects of COVID and career progress. So it did hit like so many people, like, in the head and you're not expecting that well i wasn't so do you have any ideas how what can we do as a community to help each other and make sure that all these losses are somehow fixed yeah look we're all affected i mean i i started thinking where am i going to go when i couldn't bring in patients you know and and still it's it and and in terms of the lab um we're all unsure because there's no certainty in in in, in where we're going. Um, certainly, we we have to. I think we need to to start as a community where where we have um, critical masses of you know or associations to set up different. Um, Oh, uh, special sessions or some sort of chats so that we can we can start talking not so much uh, sharing about what we're going to do it's a matter about showing that people are not alone uh, I think part of the problem with COVID was the isolation made and that's why we were fortunate to have Zoom like we are now to talk to each other but as we know you need the physical contact so I think it needs to be at certain meetings that there should be some interaction, uh, whether it's a session, you know, about um, uh, research priorities or research, yeah, some sort of specific session where people can come together. And, and in the meantime, to do this sort of thing like Zoom or, or some sort of chat session where people can join together and share some, some interests. It may be that they find out about collaboration. It's not just about sharing the experience of what, the uncertainty, but also their research so that that way it, it can be about a, a bit of a sharing, you know. One person could do one thing, another person could do something. And that way you bring, it's all about collaboration. You bring the, the whole thing together. I'm sorry, I don't have the right answer. No, but it's 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 uh, it's perfect. And I was like, I don't know if you noticed this, like, uh, but I was uh, reviewing abstracts for two conferences, the Council on Hypertension and the ISH. And one of the things, I, I don't know what you said, but it just made me think that the abstracts now can start seeing how COVID really hit a lot of people's research because uh, the abstracts you can read when you start reading their data and kind of things like, oh, this is a post-COVID uh, war because, uh, like, and it breaks my heart because I remember one specifically that was a clinical one was so interesting and built up, and then when you go to the results, oh God, I'm pretty sure because of COVID they couldn't do everything that they were claiming, 
Yeah. And, uh, and we had the same with the master study for for um, blood pressure. We couldn't recruit, you know, and because we weren't allowed any patient contacts. And um, I'm one of the um, I'm a principal investigator for our side. And, and it's just devastating because the people you have recruited, um, you have to adopt a different modality, which is fine, but but it, it's not still the same as doing all the, the, the tests that you have to do. And so I don't know what the answer is. I'd love to hear it you know, from people who have managed, but I think everybody's in the same boat. And it's about just picking up, as we said, picking up the pieces where we are now and, and moving forward. Uh, yes, we can't recover what we've lost, unfortunately, but it's like anything. Um, Rather than if we can pick up any of the things that we, we we should be able to finish, then that's great. But if we can't, then we need to think about you know refocusing our research to something that can be done now and move on. for the interim until we build up our confidence again in terms of our research, because it is very very cautious approach uh, and. I wish I could have the answer, but I, I'm mm -hmm. in the same boat as everybody. It's it's just um, a really uneasy feeling. And if you don't mind me asking, because I remember now I remember one of the interviews that we've done, uh, and the, the researcher uh, was talking about the grant agencies and what they're doing to to help and give support. And you were mentioning a lot about support and sponsorship. Um, so she was saying like some grants to say, oh, we can extend your grant for like six months, but we're yeah. not expand, expanding uh, salaries. It's just the cost for you to buy the reagents. And then she, then she brought up the, the subject. So I can buy reagents, but I cannot pay for the people to use it. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think about support? Do you think like agencies, uh, not only in Australia, but everywhere, do you think agencies are doing enough? Because I know that they got also uh, hit hard. Yeah, unfortunately, no, they're not. And and the problem is that there's no funding, you know, and, and we want um, institutions and we want agencies to, to, to fund it. But the problem is there's no funding because the governments have to give the funding and the governments are redirecting the funding because of other issues. And at the moment, we're all suffering the same thing because of the war in, in Ukraine. Our petrol prices, our cost of living is going up. And so the government is looking at how to tackle those rather than the, the research. They, they Hopefully there is an alternative funding that, that can be accessed, you know, sort of a bit of a, um, it's not so healthy for biomedical research, but clinical research may, may be able to, to re regenerate faster than, than biomedical. I think we need to have some additional funding, but I don't know where it's going to come from. Unless it's from the community, you know, where there, there is uh, not, not GoFundMe, uh, I don't know that, although some people have done that, but it, it's a matter of getting interest in philanthropic Mm -hmm. uh, um, donation uh, yeah. and and we, we we don't have as many as America does but the thing is that if you can get some different type of funding model I think that's where the answer is because our typical you know um, government funded models 
at the moment, I, I'm not an, I can't say that it's it's working, certainly not in Australia, because a lot of people, it's only 9% success rate. And so I have to look at alternatives. And the other thing is finding small pots of money. Uh, I know it's not ideal, especially for salaries, but they may, uh, sometimes people have done uh, job sharing, you know, in terms of balance. I know it doesn't work really well, but it may be some way to, to, to make the funding extend a little bit further. It's not an easy task. It really no. is hard. And and all I can say is if we can try and get together and support each other, then that may help us get through it. I, I, I don't have the answers. I wish I did. That's the thing that I, uh, I tell people in the lab. I said one day, like, oh, we need an antibody or something and we can have uh, money trouble. I'm just going to try put my baking skills to test and make like bake sales for different things in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've used my own personal funds to buy something when because it was uh, not 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 just the funding, but at the time it took you know to get it approved and everything. Oh. So I did it that way. It's not yeah. ideal, but we've all done it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Anastasia, like. Uh, this is the, the end of uh, our interview. Like, I'm so excited and sad at the same time that we have to finish. I had a huge, like, it was a pleasure for me and I'm pretty sure whoever listened to our podcast will love it. So I just want to finish by saying like a heartfelt uh, thank you for your time and for you to being here with us today and sharing your experiences. Thank you for inviting me and, and wanting to hear my story. I'm really pleased and honoured that you you asked me. Um, not As I said, not many people ask me. So to me, it's a, a real joy. So thank you so much to you and Francine. Uh, I wish you success and I look forward to seeing both of you in person, hopefully soon. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.